as Jesse said earlier, uh, we're going to come back down to earth a little bit. So after last week and looking at Jesus' transfiguration and the amazing glory of him revealing him tr- his true self to the disciples, uh, it's a bit of a downer this week. This sharp contrast from the, the majesty on the mountaintop back down to the reality of a broken and sinful world. And so this is a difficult transition in Mark, but this is also a difficult transition for a preacher, if I have to be honest, because it is much easier to preach about the glory of God and good things than to dig into a passage about our own weakness and our own frailty, and especially a passage that does not have a clear purpose stated. We learn some things, certainly, but really it's just putting our humanity on display. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to be very human together. We're going to share our collective weaknesses and our collective shortcomings and, um, and see many of the ways that this helps us in the Christian life. So this morning we're not going to get into a lot of the details that we normally would in this narrative. The details are pretty self-explanatory. Uh, we'll, bring, we'll have some commentary along the way, but we're going to look at what we can learn from this because I think what we've seen from last week to this week really shows us the Christian life. And it's often like this. We get times where we're overcome by the majesty of God and Christ. You are so amazing. You are so powerful and good and righteous and sovereign. And then we're brought back down to the sobering reality of our surroundings. It is not long after seeing the glory of who Christ is that we are so consumed with everything that is wrong around us. And I don't think I'm alone in thinking that those mountaintop times seem a lot shorter than the times in the valley. Those times when we're at peace with the Lord and nothing else matters, they seem so short in comparison to walking day by day with the afflictions, our own failures, and the weaknesses of mankind. And like the disciples, as we've seen throughout Mark, this peace and calm in the presence of Christ, seems few and far between. They have these beautiful moments here and there where he's teaching them and they're learning, but it's a lot of opposition. It's a lot of struggle. It's a lot of stumbling. Welcome to the Christian life. However, we need both of those. Just like last week, we we need the reminder of who Christ is. They needed to see him rightly on the Mount of Transfiguration. They needed to see him in his glory. They needed to see the confirmation of Moses and Elijah. Because they will need that when they go down the mountain and they face the opposition to the scribes. Their brothers are unable to cast out a demon. They're going to see more persecution as they go forward. They need that reminder, that vision of Christ in his glory needs to be ever before them because they will need to draw on it in the middle, in the midst of failure and discouragement. And I love another interesting part about what we saw last week is going to set us up for this week is they see this glorious vision of Christ, but they have a very important lesson that takes place on the way down the mountain. Isn't that that the way many times that after having a great revelation of who God is and and we've all, if you're in Christ, hopefully you have had those times where you just enjoy being in the presence of God and He encourages you and He rejuvenates you and restores you and there are many lessons that come out of that that we need to take with us but they're taught this lesson that prepares them for the trial that is to come who he is 
what he came to do and what will happen to those who are faithful like Elijah, John the Baptist. You will be beheaded. You will be hated by the world. You need those things as a sobering reminder. God is awesome and man is wicked. And these two things are constants until Christ's return. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 9. We're going to pick up in verse 14. We're going to do the entire section, 14 through 29. Mark 9, 14. And when they came down, or when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, they were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing with them about? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the body, or the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. When he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. With that, let's pray. Lord, we praise you. Good, gracious awesome, sovereign, glorious God. You are the God of the mountaintop and the God of the bottom of the valley. There is no time that is outside of your control. Whether the relative peace and joy at your feet or the trial surrounded by adversity. Lord, there's nothing that escapes you. But we, we resemble this wicked and faithless generation. Apart from you, this is us. You don't have to suffer with us. You don't have to remain with us. We deserve destruction. Yet you are faithful. You are merciful. 
You are good. And your righteousness is sufficient for our sinfulness. Praise you as a God who makes a people for himself. All of our failures, all of our flaws, all of our faithlessness. So that you may be glorified. We pray that everything we say and do this morning and throughout the week will be to your praise and to your glory. May we cry out to you in our unbelief. May we be unceasing in our prayers. You are our only source of hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we looked at a lot of the parallels of Moses and Mount Sinai. The glory cloud and the confirmation of of God. And there's another um, interesting parallel too. What did Moses encounter when he comes down the mountain? Were the people still faithful and, and everything made sense? Of course not. Moses comes down, his face still glowing from being before the Lord for 40 days, and he encounters chaos. He encounters confused and faithless people. Of course, Jesus is going is to encounter faithful and organized people, right? Let's look at the scene, and we're going to paint this picture here in the first couple verses. When they came down to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. Again, crowds in Mark are usually not a good thing. And the scribes arguing with them. So there's this, this whole scene. Everyone's shown up. The Jesus' disciples who did not get to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration are still there. And the scribes have found them and they begin a debate because that's what scribes like to do. And they're, they're facing Mark's trinity of diversity or adversity. This we see again and again in Mark. The crowds, the scribes, and the demons. They got all of them. The crowds, the scribes, and the demons together. And in just a short absence from Jesus, we don't know if this is a few hours, overnight, all it takes is a short absence from Jesus and everything goes sideways. This is where we find ourselves. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, they were greatly amazed and they ran up to him and greeted him. This is how you greet Jesus. Because when you see chaos all around you, finally you're back. You're here. Maybe you can make some sense of all this. So their response is so appropriate. But he doesn't return with his disciples faithfully carrying on in ministry or without adversity. He returns to a heated argument. And he asks them, most likely speaking to the the scribes here, what are you arguing with them about? What's your problem this time? It's like that was their mission in life, to catch Jesus slipping up, to catch his disciples falling short. They were right there to point out any errors. And so this is what Jesus comes down to, this great scene. And if that wasn't enough, wait, there's more. The worst part about the whole thing is this voice that screams out of the crowd. And someone from the crowd answered him. Teacher, I brought my son to you. Matthew and Luke include this account and they add the detail that he brought his only son with him. For he has a spirit that makes him mute. It would be bad enough that the spirit just makes him mute, but when the spirit comes over him or he seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. This is terrible. 
It's like every parent's worst nightmare. My child not only can't speak, but he's got a demon who throws him down and he grinds his teeth and he, and he freezes up in his body. Can you imagine the terror of a father, the desperation of a father who has to bring his only son, hoping, praying that Jesus might be able to do something. So, one of the first things we're going to see is there's a, there's a glimmer of faith here. Because he seeks out Jesus, he finds Jesus. It may not be full, he may not have a full understanding, but he knows enough that I can't do anything else, I must seek out Jesus. It's a, it's a good start. But, he seeks out Jesus, and he doesn't get the B team, because the B team is up on the mountain with them, he gets the C team. The C team is still down at the bottom of the mountain. And the C team, like he says, and they were not able. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. The other nine, they're in over their heads. And the disciples, as we remember, were successful in chapter 6. So something must be different here. It's not like they hadn't cast out demons before. But what is hindering them this time? So this is where Jesus finds himself. Just showing his glory to Peter, James, and John. And then he encounters this mess. So, if you're wondering why does Jesus respond the way he does, this is why Jesus responds the way he does. And he answered them. It's not an answer. The man recounts what's going on, but it is an answer. Oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Faithless generation. This is not the first faithless generation. This claim has been waged against Israel by God throughout the Psalms and the prophets again and again. This is not a generational issue that generation. This is an every generation issue. Faithlessness is the way of the world. Ever since the fall, it is our primary mode to be faithless. How long? How long? Another phrase uttered by God to the, to the prophets and the psalmists. How long will my people continue to reject me? How long will my people not trust me? How long will my people bow down to other things? How long? Jesus speaks of His frustration, but also speaking of His time growing short. I know I must go back to the Father. How much longer do I have to bear this? And you think, well, Jesus, that's not very loving. That's not the patient Jesus that I know. If you had to live one second as the perfect and holy God with wretched sinners around you, you would be impatient too. We have no idea what it's like to never sin, to never doubt God, to never be without faith and have to walk around with people who are riddled by it. Now, if we're honest, maybe our pride thinks that way. Everybody else is faithless but me. We don't truly understand what it is like to be Jesus. He has a right to be righteously angry and frustrated here. I just left you for a few minutes. Yet he continued with them. This outburst is to humble them. 
is to remind them that you will not always have me. While you have me, pay attention. Because you will need me when I'm gone. I am not meant to stay here. Jesus gives lots of indications of his time here on earth. And so one of the first lessons we're going to see in this, this first section here, in this, the midst of unrest, it's the very simple lesson that we see in John 15. If you have your Bibles, go to John 15. Of all the I am statements, this one, the true vine, speaks most about application. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. But look at verse 4. Abide in me, John 15, 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. What's the disciples' problem? Jesus left and they forgot about Jesus. They start trusting in their own strength. They're not abiding in him. They forgot. Without me you can do nothing. You are powerless. The Greek word here for able is has an emphasis on power. They were without power to do this. Because they did not stay connected to the vine. They did not abide in the vine. And the disciples are still working in their flesh, limited by their own weaknesses, their own self-reliance, and their own faithfulness. Sound familiar to anyone? This is where we get this uh, collective human nodding of our heads. Because we've all been there. We've all been exactly where the disciples are. Yeah, I'm reading my Bible. I remember who Christ is, his glory, his, his, his righteousness, his holiness. And I'm going to go off over here and do it on my own strength and fall flat on our faces. Failure often happens when we try to do things in our own strength. But most of our great lessons in life are learned in failure. We need these. We need to fail in our own strength and, and in our own trusting of ourselves because it encourages humility and it drives us to Christ. And so when we find ourselves like the disciples, face to face with our own frailty, embrace it. Embrace your frailty. Embrace your failure, embrace your affliction, embrace your difficulty. Because when you were in the valley and everything seems dark and it seems like nothing is going right, you've got nowhere to go but up. It points you to the mountaintop. We are never to forget the mountaintop when we're in the valley. So, find ourselves at a low point here point of frustration the father is at his end the disciples are at their end and jesus is frustrated this is not where the account stops so picking up in verse 20 and they brought the boy to him and when the spirit saw him immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth seeing jesus kind of has this effect on evil spirits there's the the contrast or the the conflict between the two kingdoms they are face to face with the true and living god 
And he do, does all that he can do. Throws a temper tantrum. But Mark adds this entire conversation in the middle that Matthew and Luke don't. This becomes the focus of our text. The focus on the struggle of the father. The physical struggle for his son and the spiritual struggle for belief. So picking up in verse 21, Jesus asked him, asked, uh, excuse me, asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? Like any good physician, he familiarizes himself with the condition. And he said, from childhood. When you hear the words from childhood, like this is terrible, unthinkable. It's a sobering reminder that Satan doesn't wait till we're grown up to attack us. Satan doesn't wait till we've got a job and a house and a, and, a, and a marriage and all these other things. From childhood, he begins to afflict this boy. So people who take lightly the training and instruction and discipline of their children are taking lightly their enemy. He afflicts this boy from childhood and not in a light way. Children are very susceptible to these things, and that's why Jesus has a soft spot for children. He has compassion. But I love one other detail about this. Twice in this next verse, the father identifies with his son. And so when he goes on and says, this is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him, But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. This is a father who is putting himself in the affliction of his son. If you have compassion on us, when my son hurts, I hurt. My son needs help, I need help. This beautiful picture of a father at his end because his son is suffering. So when we look at what it means to believe or to have faith, First of all, we have to realize that things are out of our control. This father is, it is, it is clear to him, I do not have any control over this situation. The next step is going to Christ. And knowing that our only hope is in his compassion and his help. First step, knowing I can't do anything to save myself. I can't save my son. I can't save myself. I can't heal him. I can't heal me. This is out of my control. I need someone greater than I am. I need someone more powerful than I am. I need someone who is able because I am not. And that's where most people mess up is step one. They think they are able. I think they're able to save themselves, to heal themselves, to save or heal their family. Also the disciples' mistake. They thought that they were able. So he makes a very considerate request, but makes one grave error. Did you pick up on it? What is his grave error here? But if you can do anything. This is in contrast to the right understanding that we saw in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 40, when Jesus heals the man with leprosy, look at how he responds to Jesus, and he understands him rightly. So we see the faith of the boy's father, but it's just falling short. 
Mark 1.40, And a leper came to Him, imploring Him, and kneeling, said to Him, If you will, you can make me clean. This is the proper response. Not if you can, but if you will. I know you can. But I know I'm not God. I will not speak for you. So this man is learning a lesson even in his interaction with Jesus. If you can, will you have compassion on us? Will you help us? And Jesus' response is very difficult. It's difficult to translate from the Greek and many commentators differ on it. We know that he repeats back to the man the same phrase. Is he saying this with a question mark, with an exclamation point? Probably both. If you can, saying, referring to what you just said, you said if I can, if you can, because all things are possible for the one who believes. Same word for can and able here. If you are able, the disciples weren't. Now he's questioning Jesus' ability. My ability is not in question. The only question here is your belief. That's really what's at play here, and this is where the man misses it. Jesus tells them in Matthew, even a mustard seed of faith, watered by me, will bear much fruit. So we've got these steps of faith, realizing you're not in control, going to Jesus, but the very important one, sounds easy, but it's very difficult, believing that He is able. It is not a matter of if He can or if He cannot. It's a matter of if He will or will not. So you can tell that the Father is pierced by these words because he gives one of the beautiful, most beautiful responses to Jesus we find in all of the Gospels. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. This is why affliction and humility are good. There's no hesitation in this man. When he gets challenged, he is brought to the end of his own power. I believe, help my unbelief immediately. What a wise request. This is literally, help my lack of faith. He identifies with the faithless generation that Jesus just spoke of. In the Greek, faith and belief are noun and verb of the same stem. Faith and belief mean the same thing. One is a verb, one is a noun. One is an action, one is a concept. I believe Help my lack of faith. Help my unbelief. There's one other interesting word here. The word for help. The same word used here and used in verse 22. Very rare word for help. This word is it. It combines two concepts. To cry and to run. That is the kind of help that this man is asking for. Crying out. Run to me. Hurry. A desperate plea. Help. This emphatic cry it's urgent desire i believe help my unbelief if there was a christian theme statement this is it i believe help my unbelief this is our shortest creed and if we're honest i believe i have faith but it's not perfect hence unbelief I need more. 
I know my faith is not where it should be, but I can't do it without you. I need your help. My faith is incomplete without you. It is not possible without the compassion of the Lord. This will always be the state of our Christian walk, our faith that is tethered to our flesh. When Christ works in our heart and regenerates us, He gives us faith, He gives us the ability to trust in Him. But it is still within a body of death, a jar of clay that wars against it. This is good to remember and repeat. When you doubt, when you struggle, I believe, help my unbelief. And the beautiful thing, as a guarantee, Jesus knew how faithless they would be. He sends His Spirit, His Helper, to help them in this. The answer to the prayer, help my unbelief, is the Holy Spirit given to us within us to teach us and remind us of the things of Christ. So you've got this beautiful moment with Jesus and the Father. And He speaks to Him in His Father's great response. I believe, help my unbelief. And now the crowd is growing. And the spectacle is getting larger. And when Jesus notices it. He saw that a crowd came running together. As always, the crowd wants to see a miracle. They want to see a spectacle. Show us something else cool again, Jesus. That point, when it no longer became productive to teach this man in the midst of the chaos, then he rebukes the demon, the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf demon, I command you, Come out of him and never enter him again. I love the way Jesus speaks here. We see three things that he addresses directly by name. You mute and deaf demon, I know who you are. He addresses directly and he commands specifically, come out of him. But he also speaks with finality, never go back into him. This is the power of the word of Jesus. This is the effectual nature of his work. He speaks with authority, speaks directly, speaks specifically and with finality. I am the true and living God. You are a weak and worthless spirit. Come out of him and never go back into him. Praise the Lord. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. Demon just had to make his one last final stand, right? He had to have his, his big last moment to convulse the boy one more time to cry out and then exit. And as I was thinking about this, this this week, how often is it right before the healing, right before the restoration, that the worst affliction happens? We think that there's no hope, nothing can ever be done, and we are tormented one last time. The enemy makes his last stand, but defeat is near. Ever been there? I know I have. We just have to get, the Lord pushes us right to the end of what we can bear. We see the final attack of the enemy before deliverance so that God is glorified even more. It's also amazing, as a side note, he speaks to a deaf demon and he listens. How does that happen? You mute and deaf demon. That's how powerful Jesus is. He speaks and deaf hear. Even deaf demons. 
But that's not the end of the story. There's a very powerful detail here that I think Mark includes intentionally. After this demon makes his last stand, he, left the boy, he leaves the boy like a corpse. So that most of them, the crowd said he's dead. But. There are so many beautiful buts in the Bible. This one, most of them by Jesus. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. The one who on the top of the mountain promised them that I will rise from the dead, I will raise myself up, shows that even this apparent death is not too much for him. I'm going to give you a small glimpse of that right now. And this will be a good reminder as they start to move on. In verse 31, he's going to remind them again that he must be resurrected. There is this theme that death is not final. The word of the enemy is not final. Sin is not final. I must just take him by the hand. He took him, he lifted him, and he arose. That is what he does to us. I love the picture of what he does to us because we are no different from this boy. From childhood, we are afflicted by sin. We have no control over ourselves. Our sin seizes us and throws us into the fire. Our sin drives us to destruction. Our parents don't know what to do with us. There are no answers. But by Jesus' authority, by His very Word, death, the enemy is defeated. We die first. We must be as dead like a corpse. But he reaches out. He grabs us by the hand and we rise again. I love the powerful words of the hymn, And Can It Be? Speaks to this exact process. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. So if you don't speak fluent, it's not really old English, but it is high English, like we're not used to speaking. Basically, sin has me as a prisoner. Everything seems as dark. Sin rules over me. There is no light in me at all. Thine eye diffused the quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. Thine eye, your eye, God, diffused or spread apart a ray of light that brings me to life. Because you brought this ray of life, I wake up. This dungeon that I'm in, this darkness of nature's night, becomes ablaze with your light. Only then and then do my chains fall off. My heart is free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? I love these beautiful glimpses in the Gospels. Jesus showing them a shadow of what he will do. You are Satan's right now. He has dominion over you. And for a time, he will rule over your mortal bodies. But I will banish him by the word of my mouth. I will tell him exactly who he is, exactly where he will go, and exactly how long he will stay there. And then, you will have to die. You will have to be as dead that the rest of the world does not recognize you anymore. He's dead. I don't even know him. 
I will raise you up. I will take you by the hand and you will follow me. And there's a great result of this in Luke 9. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the other accounts. But at the end of Luke 9, Luke 9, 43, he quickly, Luke adds this detail that is so important. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. God is most glorified when it seems impossible. When there is no earthly hope. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. The majesty on the mountain has now come down to earth. And he casts out this demon and he raises this boy and everyone begins praising God. This wouldn't have happened if the disciples would have just cast him out. They need to remember that in man there is limits, there is weakness, all right, guys, laugh it off. It'll, we'll just move on. <laughs> you can do nothing apart from me. But with God, all things are possible. And so the disciples, isn't this interesting? Jesus raises a boy from the dead. And the next thing the disciples have to say is, why couldn't we do it? <laughs> isn't that what we do? Verse 28, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? The disciples are us. Jesus, you're amazing, but why couldn't I do it? Why did I fall short? But it's a legitimate question. And I love here that Jesus knows he has discernment on what is for general consumption and what is for those with maturity. You don't just, lay, you don't just unpack everything publicly. He does it where he can teach them directly. Why couldn't we not cast it out? And we have the answer of Mark, but Matthew helps us fill in the picture. Look at Matthew 17. Matthew 17, verse 20 and 21. Same question. Now remember that the gospel writers add complementary details based on their purpose. And he said to them, Jesus' response is, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you had the faith like a grain of mustard, you would say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be, more, will be impossible for you. That's a much larger statement when they're standing at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration, isn't it? But what reason does he give them? Because of your little faith. Now is this contrary to what Mark says? Because Mark says this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Is this in contrast to one another? Or are these things compatible with one another? Or are these things essential to one another? And I think there is. There's an old saying, where there is little faith, there is little prayer, and vice versa. It's not just the act of prayer. It's not just a faithless, rote repetition of endless nonsense. It is someone in faith going before God. Prayer is the directing of your faith to its object. If we don't direct our faith to its object, we are relegated to this self-reliant inner dialogue. My thoughts repeating back to me in my own echo chamber. 
Prayer is a submission. They forgot the essential tool of ministry to submit to Christ in prayer. They employed faith in themselves. They had cast out demons before. They got really full of themselves. And they did not ask for help. They rested in their own ability. So just kind of in our last moments of application here. How often do we just act and forget to pray? And wonder why we fail. And wonder why we stumble in our faces. We've got to be careful though because false teachers abuse this. The point of prayer is not success, it is submission. The point of prayer is not success, it is submission. It is not I go to God so I can get what I want to prove how much faith I have. It is I go to God because He is greater and I must fall on my face before Him. I can do nothing without Him. That is what prayer reminds us. So whether God gives us our our selfish desires or not, we are reminded that we need Him. And so, the real question and difficulty is not Jesus' ability, but our trust in Him. Because, as Aaron wisely said last night, we were talking about this passage, even when we're in the valley, our God is always on the mountaintop. That is a beautiful picture Even when we struggle, Jesus never leaves His glory. He is never without power. And as our high priest, as we're learning in Hebrews, He always intercedes for us. He is never out of our reach. Our glorious Savior is always on His majestic throne. He is the God of resurrection, restoration, and new life. And in the words of Jesus, how long will we submit and limit our faith to our circumstances? How long will we see our own failings and our own affliction and our own difficulty and not see Him? How long will we keep beating our head against the wall? When there are arguments and there is unrest, we need to run to him for help, like the crowd did, excitedly and astonished. When our enemy attacks and we struggle with unbelief, we cry out to help. We cry out to him for help. And we can approach him in prayer because he is unhindered. Demons, death, he is unfazed by them all. He is victorious over all things. It is not his ability, but our belief. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, what can we say that you have not heard? What can we speak that you do not know? What could we ever offer to you? What could we give you that you do not have? What could we bring to you that would make you better? 
What could we offer but a contrite heart and a broken spirit? Lord, help your people to fall humbly before you, to submit to you, to come to you, our mediator. You've already given us everything we need. You've given us your righteousness and your spirit to, inter- to speak for us, to help us. Yet we so often fail. We are burdened by our own situations. We're relying on our own strength. We think because we are not able that you are not able. Lord, help us to never remember your amazing grace. That you would lay down your life for us. That you would take us by the hand and raise us to new life. Let us never lose the awe and wonder of the gospel. Our God who is faithful when we are faithless. You are so long-suffering with us, yet we are so impatient with you. Lord, I could recite our frailties all day long. But thankfully, because of your grace and mercy, I don't have to, because we can rest in your strength and your finished work and your majesty. Our glorious Savior enthroned on high, who we will see one day soon in glory. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.